Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today's a little bit of a different episode. We're going to be actually talking with Billy Keels all the way from Barcelona in Spain. We're having a conversation about a real estate strategy. So this is a little bit more of a conversation than a typical interview. So welcome to the show, Billy. Hey, Victor. Thanks so much for being uh, for allowing me to be here. I'm looking forward to, uh, to the conversation. So, Billy, I know that you're looking to develop a strategy in a couple of different markets in Ohio and mirror a little bit some of the work that we've been doing in a couple of different markets. So why don't we dive in right from there? Sure. Um, one of the things that we that we have seen at a well, just being focused on cash flow, a lot of the, the the market specifically in the Columbus, Ohio market is an area where we feel very comfortable that we're be, that we're going to be able to to drive cash flow uh, if appreciation happens in the plays that we'll do. That that's great, but really primarily focused on cash flow. Uh, and when I've been listening to you uh, recently, and then after having read Magnetic Capital. You know, you really talk about the buy on the line, move the line, and I'm really wanting to understand how can I make this concrete for the, the, the study and the analysis that I'm doing so that I can go out and derive the same value that you're getting in other marketplaces? I, I think that's a great question. So maybe the place to start is what was the genesis of the idea in our market? And how do we find this particular area? So I was introduced to two guys, Mark and Fran, who live in Philadelphia, that were in need of capital. And they were starting to do some good work. So I actually flew down to Philly and I met with them and looked at some of the properties that they were redeveloping. And what was striking was literally one block away in the Fairmount District, you saw beautiful turn-of-the-century townhouses. You know, they had the nicely painted door with the brass knocker on it and the window boxes with flowers and, you know, expensive cars parked out front. And a block away further north, you were in the hood. It was really that distinct a line. And digging into it, just started to ask questions. Well, what is it? Why is this line here? Why are people not moving further north. And what I heard was, well, people are willing to, they may not be willing to buy necessarily, but they'd certainly be willing to rent because rental rates south of the line were, you know, six, $700 more. Would people be willing to walk a block and save 150, 200 bucks for, for new product in the area that didn't quite have as good a reputation? So we really tested that. The first property that was built, I'll give you the address, it was 2325 North College in Philadelphia. It's facing Girard College, uh, which is a boarding school. So it's kind of a self-contained compound with a big stone wall, beautiful architecture, beautiful views of the downtown skyline. And this property was purchased for, I'm going to remember, I'd say somewhere either around twenty dollars or $25,000. The interior was a complete demolish. There had been a fire. It was really ugly with a capital U. So basically demolished the inside of the building and put a new building on the inside with all kinds of neat architectural details. Like, for example, the brick exterior, the brick party wall, some of it we left exposed. So that formed an architectural feature on the inside, something that wasn't traditional, but created a little bit of visual pop. And so those types of things are possible. So we saw, you know, did that one project purchased for $25,000, put about 130 of reno into it, and actually sold it for 289 when properties a block away were selling for half a million. So it was still a discount to the market, but we saw that we could move the line. Now, that was a flip. The thing to remember is when you're moving the line, there are really three strategies that you can employ. There's obviously flips, and that's where a lot of people will gravitate. There are rentals, 
And then there's purpose built. Whether the purpose built is for sale or purpose built for rental, you want to look at all three of those. Now, when you're doing purpose built, you're going to start to look at things like land assembly. If you can assemble three, four, five together and do a little bit of a bigger chunk, now you can put a little bit of scale behind it and you're sending a message to the marketplace. That's what we focused on. Now, we started with flips. We started with very small things. We would take even a single townhouse. I'll give you another example. Uh, I'll give you the address again. This was 2406 West Thompson Street. This was a single family townhouse. It was for sale. We bought it for, I'm going to say, see if I can remember the numbers. We bought it for $93,000. It had a tenant in it, so it had income, and it was carrying itself. But we financed it privately. And then we went to a bank 45 days later, had it appraised at 123000 and refinanced it with bank financing at its appraised value. So we got 90 some thousand dollars out of it. At that point, we were holding the no money down deal. That was basically land banking. The property was carrying itself. We knew that once we developed everything around it, it would be worth more, but we weren't under any pressure to redevelop it now because the, you know it was carrying itself. So it was really just amassing holdings in the area at a price that was attractive. And that we literally financed 100% out of debt. We didn't raise any equity. We simply debt financed the whole thing. And we were able to pull that one off. It's a very simple, very simple transaction, very repeatable. Almost anybody who's listening to this podcast could uh, implement that, that particular transaction. When it comes to new construction, it's more of a traditional play in the sense that we are raising the traditional capital stack, typically 25% equity, 75% construction loans to get you to 100% of your total investment. Now, of course, that investment gets broken down into three categories. There's the land. You may have to demolish the structure. So we typically include the demolition cost as part of our land cost in, the, in our way of thinking. And then, of course, there's the hard construction cost and the soft cost. Soft costs are all of the things that don't contribute directly to the vertical construction. So your interest costs, your holding costs, architectural, building permits, insurance, your interest reserves for the life of the project, all of that goes into soft costs. And we put a pretty healthy budget in there for that. Now, the key to our version of the buy on the line, move the line strategy is to create enough value that there is a very predictable exit. And that's the beauty is when you're creating that much value and you're buying at a significant discount, you can create that margin that normally wouldn't be readily visible if you're just trying to buy stuff off the MLS. I'll give you an example. Another project we just completed, in fact, we refinanced literally in the past week. This property, uh, the address is 2220 West Master Street in Philadelphia. It's actually five properties. And this property is a screw up. It's one that we've talked about on the podcast before where the city was going to be putting together a claim of eminent domain on a very large area in North Philadelphia, and our properties were on the list. We had assembled eight lots. Now, there was a structure on that particular property, and we didn't want to demolish it for risk of, quote-unquote, destroying value at the wrong time because vacant land is worth less than land with a, even a derelict structure on it. So we didn't want to risk investors' money. So we decided to wait until the eminent domain process completed. And without making this a whole long story, by the time the eminent domain process completed, what we had originally envisioned for that particular site didn't work. Number one, the city took three lots out of the eight from us. 
And number two, our construction costs have gone up significantly. So the project we conceived no longer worked after you know several years of waiting. So we redesigned the building to higher density. We found a loophole in the zoning code where we could get higher density, and we designed instead of a 10-unit project, we designed a 13-unit project. We just completed that project in March of this year. We started leasing in March. It completed in February and leased up by the summertime. The total project was, give or take, about $2 million all in. That's land, hard cost, soft cost, was about $2 million for 13 units. And the building appraised at $2.9 million. So you can, at that point, refinance the project and recover your equity. So even though we had those kind of significant overruns, including holding costs for close to five years, I mean, think about that, we were still able to pull this one out of the fire by simply buying at a significant discount to the market. And we would not have got the rents in that particular location if we just built that building by itself. The reason we were able to get those rents is because of everything we built around it. You go one block further south to Thompson Street, we built a ton of product on Thompson Street. That's the key, is to create enough scale that you send a message to the marketplace. They have confidence that you are you know, redeveloping not just one property, but the entire neighborhood. And when that happens, people get attracted to that. They say, okay, yes, it's not quite there yet, but it's a brand new building. I like the design. I like, you know, the rent is a little bit of a discount to the most expensive area. So I still want to be walking distance to the coffee shop and all the rest. And I'm willing to, to walk a block or two to be in that slightly less expensive neighborhood. And that's really the key. It's really farming that entire area and putting together that strategy. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, I don't have the capital to do 20 right away. And that's fine. You want to be in an area where there's enough opportunity that you don't have to employ scarcity mentality. You could bring a few friends along and you could say, you know what, We're, let's go into this area together. Maybe you're a volume flipper and I'm a, an apartment constructor. You do as many volume flips as you want and I'll build as many apartment buildings as I want and there'll still be plenty left over for anybody else. That's really the, the, the approach. And so when we went into this particular neighborhood in Philadelphia, what captured my attention was I saw the specific properties that were being worked on, but more importantly, I saw 10 years of opportunity at least. I mean, you really couldn't quantify it. I saw a decade of opportunity uh, in front of us. And, and so that's what got interesting. And the thing to think about is that oftentimes people focus on the real estate. And in this context, the real estate doesn't matter. This is the real estate is your inventory in your business. You're not going to, you know, think about Amazon. Amazon didn't build their business because all of a sudden they got an inventory of books. You know, it's kind of ridiculous to suggest that. The inventory is just the inventory. Their secret sauce had to do with what they did with the inventory. How did they service it? How did they uh, get it in the customer's hands? It's what you do to it that's the that's the magic. It's not the inventory. So if you think about these properties as inventory, I know it's kind of maybe insulting to the real estate to call it that, but in reality, that if you think about it that way, it helps frame uh, it helps frame where you place the emphasis on the business. So that's kind of how we got there. It was really just looking at the area and deciding to purchase in a very very small area. I'll give you a contrasting example. 
There's a lady that I know out of Toronto who sold a business with her and her ex-husband, came into a tremendous amount of money at the peak of the downturn, 2008, 2009, and she went on a buying spree, buying properties all over the nation. You know, she bought properties in Atlantic City, New Jersey. She bought properties in Ocala, Florida, in Albany, New York. They were all bargains, but she had no concentration of assets, so she didn't have a single team managing the whole thing. And it was a disaster. I would have much rather seen her buy five, six properties all on the same block. Then she would have had the opportunity to do something meaningful because you've got that concentration. You can start to treat it like inventory where you have a system and a process that you can apply. And I want you to think that it's not just me. This isn't just Victor talking about it. I'll give another example. I'll talk about Brittany Turner the founder and CEO of Aerial Development Group in Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville, as you know, is a hot market. There's 120 people a day moving into Nashville. And she went into East Nashville at a time when it was a no-fly zone. It was really the hood. And she was really blazing a trail at that point. She has largely single-handedly redeveloped East Nashville. It's the same process, and it works in any market. You know, Victor, and it's interesting when, so when you're talking about the team, so what would you say is, because it sounds like you're, you, you're working with the same team in your market in, in Philadelphia, but what kind of, what was the, um, how have you gone about selecting the team that can now help you to repeat the process? Because it seems like that's one of the keys that one of the key elements as well. It is the key element. It really is because, you know, a good deal badly managed, of course, is no deal. So it really comes down, the team is everything. It comes down to the fundamentals of who are the right folks for you to partner with. It starts with a bunch of characteristics that start with the letter C. So you've got to have people that have the right character. Uh, you've got to ha- they've got to be committed. So there's got to be commitment on their part. There has to be the right chemistry with you. You know, that you've got to be dealing with ethical people, but you've got to be able to work together. You've got to have the right competence. They've got to be good at what they do. Now, they don't have to be good at everything. You know, for example, they might be good at construction, but they may not be good at raising capital. Well, that's where you come in and you can bring the capital and you can say, all right, we'll put together a process for managing these projects. And yes, you'll have to give up a little bit of ownership share to get these projects done, but you'll more than make it up on volume because we're going to create more value. We're going to create a system where we can deploy capital, we can recycle capital. So it's not just a project, it's a stream of investment. And then maybe just one last question. And because one of the things that as, I, as we think about this strategy, which is can add lots of value to the communities that you're bringing them into. But when you think about you're buying on the line and you're moving that line, usually there's going to, there's a transition period. So one of the things that probably many people like me are thinking about or we're listening is, how is that how does the team manage that process of moving something that is maybe used to be the hood is no longer the hood because there's so many horror stories about if you leave your property overnight uh, you could lose all of the what I don't know whether it's the windows or the copper or whatever um, just how your teams go about managing some of that because that's got to be a part of the risk mitigation strategy I would assume it is. And occasionally, you know, things happen. You know, for example, we had a, a building that we were, we were redeveloping and we came in on Monday morning and all the copper was gone in, in the building. Now, fortunately, in this particular instance, 
uh, we had just constructed the building across the street, a brand new 10-unit apartment building, and there were security cameras from the apartment building facing the building that were under construction. Now, it turns out that the guy who stole the copper had done some of the concrete work on the apartment building, and he even showed up wearing his company sweatshirt. So we had the whole thing on video. We took the video and showed it to the owner of the concrete company and asked him what he wanted to do about it. Uh, so we basically got our compensation for the stolen copper very quickly. Security cameras are important. If there are materials on site, you secure them in a container. Uh, so you put a container on site or what, what have you so the materials don't disappear. But once something's installed in the building, yeah, you've got some risk. It's not zero. And of course, you carry insurance. Uh, some people resort to having security. Um, you know, physical security, where security guards will patrol the property. If you're doing small projects, that's expensive. So, you know, you do the best you can and hope for the best. And so far, we've been quite lucky after, you know, having redeveloped about 70-some properties uh, in a very small area where we're not far from crime. I mean, if you look at the crime stats, the historical crime stats, it's a legitimate concern. So, yeah, you just do the best you can. And so far, we've been reasonably lucky and, you know, save for that one incident, which we were able to recover uh, simply by being a bit prudent. And with all of our buildings, we do install security systems. We install security cameras. Uh, there is video recording. It's visible over the internet. So we can monitor at any time. I don't know exactly why we've been successful. Maybe that's part of it. Um, I'm sure it helps. And uh, that you just do the best you can. Yeah, those are, I mean, those are excellent points, Victor, just to think about the, the security. I mean, sometimes there, things can be a, an inside job, which happened uh, that way. We never protect 100% against uh, a risk, but uh, also having, I guess, depending on the complexity of the, of the project, you may want to have just something on site working, keeping them in containers too, as much as having uh, probably armed people on your site during the evenings if the project um, can sustain that. So no, those are really good, uh, really good tips. Appreciate that. Hopefully that gives you a pretty good idea how we've implemented the buy on the line, move the line strategy. Like I said, we've done flips, we've done land assemblies and built brand new apartment buildings, and we have redeveloped properties for just straight rentals. Uh, so we've literally done all three. Today, we gravitate overwhelmingly to building new product. Uh, building new apartment buildings. They don't have to be huge. It could be, you know, 10 units, 15 units, but you want to assemble enough land that you can build something bigger because the effort from my vantage point to finance a single family home versus finance a 10 unit building or a hundred unit building is almost identical. So all of the things being equal, you can talk about return on investment and that's important, but there's also return on time. And return on your time, my time, is extremely important because we have only a finite time on this planet. And so you want to take maximum advantage of that. So thanks, Billy. That's a great question. And uh, for the listeners at home, definitely take a look in your own market at the buy on the line, move the line strategy. I can guarantee virtually every city in America has that situation. And you can just drive through the neighborhood and you will see it. That, that line is there. It's visible. And sit down with your team, sit down with your brokers and figure out what's happening in the marketplace. You'll see the opportunity. It's there. Have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.